When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Michael Finkel to discuss his new book, The Art Thief, a true story of love, crime, and a dangerous obsession which chronicles the life of Stefan Breitweiser, the most prolific art thief in history. Mike is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. As well, true story about Finkel's strange relationship with a murderer who had assumed his identity. Formerly, as a journalist, he reported from more than 50 countries across six continents, covering such topics as the world's last hunter-gatherers, to conflicts in Afghanistan and Israel, to black market trafficking in human organs. Michael Finkel, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So, this book that you've written, The Art Thief, A True Story of Love, Crime, and Dangerous Obsession, is one of the more fascinating books I've read in the four years that we've been doing this podcast. And so before we delve into it, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this topic. So I've been a journalist for a very long time. I've been a uh, full-time journalist for more than 30 years. I'm 54 years old. My name's Mike Finkel. I live right now in Park City, Utah. And I've written, uh, I'm kind of spoiled. I've written about whatever has made me really just feel that journalistic buzz. Uh, anything from heavy science, theoretical physics. I've covered uh, conflicts in Afghanistan and uh, the Second Intifada in Israel and Palestine, uh, fascinated by true crime, love to adventure and climb mountains. And so I've had a really fortunate career, some ups, some downs for sure. And I just look for, it's the old cliched adage, the truth is stranger than fiction, but those are the stories that I seek. And those are the ones that I hopefully find. And how did you find this one? How did you find Stefan Wieser? Well, Michael, one of the things I like to do, especially in the age of the internet, is like scour the small town newspapers of the world. And that's how I like to, I, you know, when I'm looking for a book topic or something, I'm looking for something that's not in the daily media, that's not on the television news, but yet is riveting and fascinating. I happen to, my French accent is terrible, but I can read and, uh, and speak French. And I saw in a relatively small French newspaper from the Alsace region, a, uh, a story about an art thief. And I think there were like three incredible things in two paragraphs. One was the, just the sheer number of thefts that this thief stole of uh, more than 200 museums. And then there was his method of stealing, which was nonviolence. And then the thing that sort of pushed me into obsession was the fact that he just hung these works in his bedroom rather than trying to sell them. And I was fascinated and wanted to know more. And, uh, that was the uh, that was the germ of this uh, of the of this story, which took me um, eleven years from start to finish. So I am I am pretty much the epitome 
of inefficiency if anybody is listening to this and wants to know how to write uh, quickly and, uh, and you know, publish frequently, then they're probably listening to the wrong person. So Stefan Wright Weiser, as you said, has stolen over 300 pieces of art worth almost $2 billion over a 10-year period recently, too, in the 1990s to mid-2000s. So this is not medieval thievery. So why don't we start by asking the question of who was he? Who was he as a young man? Tell us about his sort of upbringing. Yes, I'm glad that you mentioned that it's a current story. I, uh, it does sort of sound when I'm talking about it like it's some sort of historical uh, nonfiction or something like this. So first, I want to stress that everything I'm about to say is true, not based on a true story, not 99% true. No names changed. This is a true story. Stefan Breitbieser was born in 1971. So he's in his 50s right now. And he granted me, you know, many interviews. He is the only child of, um, it was an only child. And both of his parents said that from a very early age, he seemed more attracted, obsessed with objects than people and specifically ancient objects he had he loved um, items from the medieval period to maybe the end of the renaissance like the 1700s he had all sorts of just just uh i guess you've all we've all met collectors in our lives people that seem to not be able to stop talking about what they want to um obtain and brightweiser seemed like a natural born from a very young age like elementary school age just uh incredibly intensely um, attracted to objects, collectibles, uh, ancient ones. And both his parents noted that. And of course, no one could ever predict uh, where this obsession would lead. He had different relationships, though, with each parent, and they'll ultimately divorce. So tell us a little bit about, because those relationships impact his behavior going forward. So let's start with his relationship with his dad. Who was his dad and how did they get along? Sure. So this is uh, Brightweiser, by the way, grew up in the Alsace region of northeastern France. And that's sort of where the three-way borderlands between Germany, Switzerland, and France meet. Uh, Brightweiser grew up in a fairly well-to-do family. His father uh, inherited lots of collectibles, ancient weapons, uh, uh, beautiful ivory pieces. And there's actually a relatively well-known impressionist artist who also has the last name, Breitwieser, the same name as the art thief, and uh, many of this person's Breitwieser's paintings were on the walls of their house. Uh, Unfortunately, the parents had a very contentious divorce, and Breitwieser's father left the family when Breitwieser was 19 years old and took away all of the collectibles that were in the house, and Breitwieser sort of cut off contact with his father, moved in with his mother, but there were none of these beautiful pieces, not a single one, Breitwieser claimed uh, his father left behind. They were inherited. They were from his father's side of the family. And so at the age of 19, there was this sort of rupture in the family. It's, you know, feels like one is uh, at the cusp of adulthood at 19, but Breitwieser expressed a tremendous loss, whether it was for actually his father or the objects that his father took with him, wasn't quite clear. But this was sort of the 
if you're going to make a mythology or a, if you're going to try and simplify what is always complex, one's upbringing is never, you know, point A to point B, or, you know, we can delve into psychology from now to next year and maybe still not know what exactly goes on between one's ears. But really the, the breakup of his parents sort of seemed to be the impetus for the real start of the, what could be seriously called the most impressive art crime spree, maybe of all time outside of warfare. So his father sort of leaves him high and dry with his mother in now a, a rented apartment with Ikea furniture. And they have an interesting relationship, which again, I talk about these things, not so much for the psychology of it, but because they play a role as his story progresses. So tell us a little bit about his relationship with his mom. Right, Beether's mother was a pediatric nurse, which seems like a, you know, this is going to be someone who obviously is going to be infused with a lot of caring if your job is to basically take care of children that are hospitalized. But his mother was temperamental. They had an incredibly, right, Visa and his mother had an incredibly tight bond. And that's not to say it's a healthy one. She seemed to be overly forgiving of her son's foibles, or perhaps like many people who ended up in Brett Visa's orbit, there was only a small handful of them, but they all seemed to be like sort of <sighs> ridiculously overwhelmed by this guy's sensitivity to art and gave him way too much latitude to run with this. They thought perhaps he was a, um, gifted in some sort of sensory perception and just allowed this guy, Bright Vizer, the art thief, to have too, he wasn't as they would say in French, mal élevé. He was not well raised, but uh, the mother-son relationship is a fascinating one. And uh, Brad Fieser spoke about it at length. And I never quite, it's one of those inexplicable sort of uh, relationships that uh, ends ends up, of course, as many uh, as many stories that, that go to a degree of craziness ends up in a really unusually, um, unexpectedly shocking place. And you say early on after the divorce, the mother and son uh, united in against a judgmental father. So there was some bonding there. The other thing that's interesting in Bright Wieser's upbringing is his relationship with the maternal grandparents, particularly the grandfather. So let's talk about that. And then we can try to move forward from his youth. Yeah. So the father leaves the house. Bright Wieser has a unhealthy, but extremely tight bond with his mother and his mother's parents, his maternal grandparents were, that was pretty much Bright Visor's inner circle. They too seemed uh, overly permissive of their only grandchild. And even when he was young, plied him with money and allowed him to pursue his passions without maybe insisting that he learn how to be self-sufficient and, and grow up. There's a little bit of Peter, if you're sensing a little Peter Pan syndrome going on, I, I agree with you that Brad Visa really was not, uh, he was coddled and perhaps became a little bit of a brat. And this sort of informed his behavior as he, as he grew up. But the thing that's interesting about him is he spoke three languages he was an avid reader of archaeological journals and fine art magazines and textbooks on medieval pottery and classical architecture, Hellenic history. I mean, he was a self-educated person at a pretty high level around art-related stuff. 
Yeah, uh, an autodidact indeed. Uh, listen, I have spent a lot of time in my career speaking with criminals, especially intelligent ones, and I do revel in the ability of smart yet uh, law disabiding people to rationalize almost everything. Yes, Bright Visor, who never had any formal art training, had a high sensitivity to art, which is actually a thing. We won't get into the uh, the psychological, but some people just just react with more depth than others in front of certain works of art. Uh, other people just, you know, they. I love the Rocky Mountains and I'm, I get carried away by a beautiful sunset. Uh, and there are some works of art that move me, but Brett Wieser with these particular art, pieces of art, especially Renaissance, 16th, 17th century, late Renaissance, early Baroque period was, uh, was absolutely carried, uh, carried away by the motion. And then he also supplemented his feelings about art by reading widely and fashioning himself some sort of art expert. But then I think he started to believe that he is his, appreciation of works of art were so great that he on some level deserved to take them out of museums and bring them home where these pieces could be appropriately loved rather than uh rather than just rudely hung on the walls of these museums and we can get into his rationale but i I sat, we spent a lot of time speaking with one another and uh, oftentimes, you know, I'm just, I can only raise an eyebrow and say, well, go on, let me hear, let me hear your theories of why you deserve to steal pieces of art and aren't in the least bit remorseful. And I think this, the seed of that is his, his feeling of entitlement and uh, sensitivity and erudition when it came to works of art. But there is this Stendhal syndrome that is sort of documented, right? The French writer Stendhal. In the uh, late 1800s, wrote a book about his travels in uh, Italy and other places. And uh, in Florence, he Stendhal came across this fresco in a basilica and was just overwhelmed with the magnificence of this fresco. He thought his heart was going to give out. He thought he was going to have a heart attack. He felt like dizzy in front of this work and had to rush out of the basilica and lay on a bench to recover. And many years later, there was a the head of psychology department at the biggest hospital in Florence noted that there were occasional tourists that seemed overwhelmed in front of a work of art, most often the great sculpture, the David by Michelangelo. And this psychologist, she named the syndrome people that seemed to be overwhelmed in the presence of art. She named it Stendhal syndrome after the French writer. And when Brett Wieser read about Stendhal syndrome, he said that feels exactly like the feeling I have in front of a work of art that appeals to him. Now, 99% of the pieces that he saw, he would just walk by. But when he saw something that touched him in this aesthetic way, he was overwhelmed often. Rather than running outside uh, to rest on a bench, he would often feel the need to take it with him and then walk outside. But this, I must uh, note that uh, Stendhal syndrome is not an official diagnosis in the DSM, but has been reported widely, but not thoroughly enough. But I did find it a fascinating uh, little side side note in, in in the process of also studying the history of art crime and people whose reactions to works of art seemed extreme. So Bright Weezer is being coddled by his mother and his permissive grandparents. And he gets his start, as I was reading the, the timeline, in a sense, he gets his start going out with his grandfather on these, quote unquote, expeditions. He's a young boy and, and he's out with his grandfather. Tell us about the expeditions, because maybe that's the beginnings of 
it's okay that I do this? Right. Visa was, you know, for someone who was obsessed with ancient artifacts, was born in the right spot. Alsace has been populated by, uh, it's been populated for millennia. Julius Caesar started building forts there in the first century AD. And right, Visa's grandfather would often take his only grandson, his only grandchild on these expeditions, as Bright Wieser called them. They were just hikes to see medieval ruins. And the grandfather had a really good beachcomber's eye and would walk with a cane and would point to things in the soil where he thought maybe like a little artifact could be located. And Bright Wieser would get on his hands and knees. And this is when he was in elementary school and dig and find maybe little pieces of tile, bits of pottery, parts of crossbows or weapons, and sensed Bright Fieser told me in our interview, sensed even then when he was a kid that maybe it wasn't quite right to take them, take them home. But his grandfather said, ah, oh, you, you, you can bring that, that little piece home. And he said to me, Bright Fieser, that these items that he found as an elementary school kid uh, accompanied by his grandfather were the first objects that, uh, quote, held his heart just grabbed him. He could, he kept them in a blue plastic box. Even at that time, he felt like he had to keep his collection sort of secret. And that is sort of a, a th some, some people with their collection want everyone in the world to see it. And some people just want it to be for them. They have this unique relationship with it. And Bright Fieser was in that latter category where he held everything in this little box in the basement and would crawl down to the basement and just touch the objects that he found. And he said it was like, almost like there was an electric current running between him and the objects. And these are, these are reactions that have been noted before, but uh, I find, I, you know, I found that to be fascinating because rather than try and follow a, a path that would maybe be a little bit more legal or understandable, Bright Fieser took this sort of idea of being able to take something that gave him that Stendhal syndrome sort of reaction and just brought it out to the, ultimate in illegality as, mm. his, as his life progressed. So there he is collecting or thieving uh, little artifacts from medieval castle properties. And he's also collecting stamps and coins and old postcards. And he's pretty much a loner prone to depression. I think you even made note that he had sort of suicidal notions d during this period, which is, you know, sort of age 1920. We're talking about, now, and then he meets anne Katrine Kleinklaus. Tell us about her. And so one of the things I like about the, this entire story is it's not just a chronicle of 200 different crimes. It really is a love story or a love triangle if you're talking about Bright Wieser and his mother. So when Bright Wieser is 20 years old, and as you, as you just said, a difficult child prone to severe depression, a sort of loner, Someone who thought he himself told me that he thought he would only fall in love with inanimate objects. He meets a girl and Catherine Kleinklaus, who's about almost exactly the same age as him, also from a family with deep roots in the Alsace region. She had, he said, impeccable taste in all things from clothing to cars to works of art and I spoke to many people who spent time or s observed Bright Wieser and Anne Catherine Kleinklaus as a couple, and they all said the same thing. Wow, what an unhealthy relationship. What a terrible idea for a relationship. But they also said something even more powerful that sort of explains everything. And they said, wow, it was also clear 
that these two were in love and that was that is denied by nobody they clearly loved each other and there you know for those of us who have been in love that love can make you do crazy things and in this case the union of these two 20 year olds and Catherine had never been arrested had never been in trouble before somehow produced this two-person thieving team that is unprecedented in the history of art crime. And uh, it just sort of happened bizarrely organically. And the, the real seed of it was, was a love affair. So I want to turn in a moment to the first theft sort of that they do as a couple, but just so the audience has an understanding of right visa in relationship to other art thieves, give us five minutes on what's normal among thieves and what okay. volume they might take and how they might take it. So we understand him in relationship to them. Right. Visa in terms of art crime is an outlier in many different ways. If I say to everybody, think of an art thief. There's generally two uh, categories. One is, oh, you think of maybe Pierce Brosnan in the Thomas Crown Affair or Ocean's Eleven or Dr. No or, uh, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, by the way, everything that I've just mentioned, these are fictitious art thieves. It somehow seems that every art thief in literature or in the movies is this esthete, this debonair uh, a person who steals art for the love of it. Well, that actually does not exist with a few tiny exceptions. So if I said to you, now think of a real art thief, perhaps the one that comes to mind is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, robbed of 13 works in 1990, a crime, by the way, that is still unsolved. The two men that committed that crime, dressed in police uniforms, knocked on the, uh, they came late at night to the uh, museum were uh, permitted inside by the night guards because they thought they were police officers, immediately attacked the night guards. These two men bound their face with duct tape, handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. And already Breitwieser, who, by the way, told me in one of our first interviews that he doesn't like to be called an art thief, that he really dis he hates to be called an art thief, he said, because of people like the Isabella Stewart Gardner thieves. It wasn't even the fact that they were violent and tied up the guards. It was what the... Gardner thieves did next, which was they marched up to the most magnificent artwork in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which was a Rembrandt seascape from the 1600s. And one of the men stuck a knife in the canvas and dragged that knife along the edge of the frame, cutting out the canvas from its stretcher and frame and basically damaging a Rembrandt, a work, I mean, a priceless work of art. And so even if these paintings are found, which they have not been, there never will be whole. And that, to Breitfieser, was the worst crime that anyone could do. It was to destroy or damage a work of art while stealing it. Breitfieser said he was always so careful when he removed frames before he could take them out of the museum. If he didn't have the time to carefully bring a piece out of the museum without damaging it, he would abandon the crime. And so uh, when I asked him, okay, so you don't want to be called an art thief, what would you like to be called? And his answer was he liked to be called a collector with an unorthodox acquisition style, which I found to be quite amusing. It's David Niven in the Pink Panther, the aristocratic uh, jewel thief. So his first theft, leaving aside his grandfather, 
and the wanderings on their expeditions is a belt buckle, right? So a couple of things to know about Brad Beezer. He worked as a security guard in a museum right after high school, not for very long, but just enough to sort of learn how security systems work. By the way, most museums, you know, you guards have to eat lunch and museums are open during lunch. It's usually half the guards often go on lunch break while the other half patrol. So often for that lunch hour, there's half the usual number of guards in a museum. Uh, he learned how uh, cameras work, the sort of edges of a camera's um, viewscape how he learned that uh, after a couple of days on the job, you really don't see the, as a, as a security guard, you don't really see the works on the wall. You just, it sort of fades into the background. So these were all very uh, insightful um, things that he learned about museums. And uh, so he he quit after about a month or so as a guard and took with him, you know, not only this education in, in how museum security works, but also took with him a belt buckle from, I think, the year about 500 AD. And that may have been his first museum crime. This is be- right before he had met, he met Anne-Catherine. So he already had this sort of idea of taking things with him and even had the great idea, since he was a security guard, of rearranging the display case from which he stole this belt buckle to make it appear as if there was nothing missing, no big gap in it, because he knows the security guard just sort of scans the room and that isn't looking for specific items after a couple of days on the job, just wants to see there's no blank spots and just sort of simple psychological solutions to what seemed like incredibly uh, risky behavior. Brightware is sort of the master at these like very subtle, um, understated, quiet moves that permitted him to become this extraordinarily successful and prolific thief. So there he is with this little belt buckle and a knowledge of cameras and he's met and Katrine and they go on a, a on a trip to a place that he had been to as a kid. And in this place, they see a flintlock pistol from the 18th century. So I sort of think about that as like the, the beginning of the 10-year rampage. And uh, perhaps you can tell us about it and the beginnings of the Bonnie and Clyde-like relationship that these two had as they embarked together. One of the things I loved about reporting the story was just driving through the regions where Brad Fieser and his girlfriend, Anne Catherine Kleinklaff stole. And for those of uh, for your listeners who have traveled through Europe, well, then you know what I'm talking about, just how charming all these little villages are and how there are tiny museums and medium-sized museums and huge museums dotted throughout Europe and how the whole impact to an American like myself the entire continent of Europe feels like one big museum. And I believe that Brett Wieser felt the same way. There was art just everywhere. This wasn't like there was just one major museum here and there. There were dozens, hundreds uh, where Brett Wieser lived within a day's drive. He could drive to a dozen other countries and thou- literally thousands of museums. So the the options felt limitless. So Brett Wieser's father leaves the family. And just about the same time, this is when he falls in love with Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus, and she moves in with him. So the father moves out, the girlfriend moves in. Uh, the father takes all of these collectibles. The thing that Brad Fieser loved the most that his father took were these antique pistols, flintlock pistols that Brad Fieser said he used to play with when he was a young boy. The father doesn't leave anything behind for his son 
very oddly just takes all this stuff and leaves. And Fred Wieser really wanted to replace this. He goes into museum. He has this Stendhal syndrome sort of reaction to a pistol that is in a display case in a tiny museum with no guards, just one cashier down on the, the first floor. And it's in an unlocked display case, by the way. For those of you who travel in the, and go to small museums in Europe, it is shocking. These museums are shockingly unprotected at times, and I'm not endorsing stealing anything. It's just based on public trust, and what Brett Wieser did was sort of was sort of a, a cancer on the public trust. And, and if, if everybody behaved like him, there would be no more museums within a week. Everything would just be locked in vaults, and there would just we would not be able to see some of the world's greatest treasures. But he sees this pistol. He gets this uh, Stendhal syndrome reaction and uh, his girlfriend, perhaps wanting to impress her, his boyfriend, deepen their love, perhaps wanting some of the people that knew Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus said she had this sort of Bonnie and Clyde fantasy, perhaps wanting to be a touch of Bonnie and Clyde. She says to her boyfriend, to Stefan, take it. And he slides open the... uh, a locked panel of the display case. He's wearing like a school backpack, puts the 18th century pistol in his backpack and they run out of the museum, which by the way, isn't the greatest way to get away with it because it's pretty obvious, but they didn't know what they were doing. So their first real theft, drive back to their apartment, panicked, he says, that the police will come any minute and to their surprise, no police come and this fear sort of softens to calmness and then ecstasy. And then Bright Wieser says, you know, this compared to all the other pieces he'd taken, the things he collected with his grandfather, the belt buckle he took when he was a guard, suddenly he has this amazing work of art that he said he has to, he wants to sleep next to. And that whole action from stealing it to getting away with it, to feeling the panic, to the relief that no one comes and then owning an object that is his to touch uh, and by the way, a much nicer, more valuable weapon than anything his father had owned. That really, that wasn't something where Breitfieser thought, ah, that was, I got away with it once, never again. It was exactly the opposite reaction. Wow, I can't wait to do something like that again. Mm. And, and he said to you, I think in one of the interviews, that he hoped that these thefts would somehow fill or satisfy a hole inside of him left by his father. So there was an aspect of this of, I'm going to have a bigger collection than my father too, so, which is why we spent this time talking about it. There's an aspect of what he does that's not only the Stendhal syndrome, but I'm going to show up my dad as well. I sometimes find these to be, as as we continue with the story, I sometimes find these ideas like, oh, I'm doing this to take, you know, to uh, replace the items that my father took these excuses feel exactly like that. A little bit of excuses. I don't accept them fully. I, now, you know, if you do have a chance to read The Art Thief, the book that I wrote, I really don't like it when a writer tells a reader what to think. I like to let, I feel like the reader is sort of like a jury. And I try to lay out all these facts and all these ideas. Of course, I am filled with opinions and biases, but I try and lay everything there. And I love to hear what readers think about bright visors excuses slash rationales uh but yes uh at first he said it was to 
replace the items that his father took, but it wasn't very long in their thieving spree before his collection was worth so much more than anything his father had ever owned. And that wasn't even, that didn't slow them down, stop them, satisfy him in the least. And one of the fascinating aspects of someone who is a true collector, and I've read a bunch of psychology books on the psychology of collecting, and is that if you really are a true collector, and there are many of us out there, I am Unfortunately, there's plenty of other uh, plenty of other uh, issues that have affected me in my life, but I'm not obsessed with collecting things except for maybe fantastic stories. But if you truly are a collector, there really is no moment where you're like, ah, I now have a complete collection uh, in anything. There's always another thing to possess and to desire. And I think Bright Visor fooled himself for many years that just one more, just one more, just one more. And eventually it was obvious to everyone that knew him that he was unable to stop collecting. It's like me and chocolate, same problem. (laughs) And when I say collecting, what I mean is stealing. So, uh, you know, that was his form of collecting, if we recall, a collecting with an unorthodox acquisition style. You know, Brightweiser said, oh, if he was just a billionaire, then he would have just bought everything instead of stole it. First of all, what a funny excuse. And second of all, I'm not actually sure if that's true. There was, a, there was definitely an element of the thrill of the crime, as much as he pretended to deny this, that uh, was part and parcel of his obsession that the getting away with the, with the crime was, was also exciting, not just possessing and hanging a new piece up in his room. So we said up in his room, I forgot to say the mom gets a settlement with the dad after the divorce, she gets a house and he moves into the third floor. I'm sort of thinking of it as the attic in a sense with a lock on the door that's where he's living, and that's then where he and and Katrin live, and that's where he hangs or posts on the bedpost this bugle. And so it becomes, in a sense, their domain, their quote-unquote art museum. Yes? We need to talk about Breitfieser's secret lair. Yes, there's a divorce. Uh, the Breitfieser grew up in a quite nice house before his parents split. There's a split. Uh, after the settlement, the mother buys this very basic small, I mean, if you asked like a three-year-old to draw a house, you know, it'd be like a, a square with a triangle on top. That's basically what his house looked like. The mother always over permissive, uh, even though Breitfieser is in his early 20s. By this point, she invites he and his girlfriend, Anne Catherine Kleinklaus, to move into the attic chamber. So this is a low-ceilinged two-room attic suite and Breitfieser, a gift from his maternal grandparents. He gets this wonderful four-poster bed where the, the pillars on the bed just graze the ceiling. So he jams this into this crazy attic room. Uh, he doesn't have to pay rent. Breitfieser's job, quote unquote, is basically as an art thief, which is another way of saying he was an unemployed freeloader living in his mother's attic. And piece by piece, Breitfieser and Anne Catherine Kleinklaus start putting the spoils of their crimes on the walls of this attic. And uh, he tells his mother that, oh, these are just flea market fines or knockoffs. He's just trying to enliven an ugly attic. This is what he tells her. We can get into this a little later, but uh, I have to please people that are listening. You, I've seen home video, this two room attic at the height of its glory is something that gives me goosebumps. It is the most extraordinary thing that maybe I can 
I can imagine this is the, the real thing. This is not a fantasy. There were at its height of glory, like 300 works, museum quality works of art, not just paintings, but sculptures and gold and silver and ivory and mother of pearl and religious pieces and pieces celebrating, um, you know, the birth of basically oil painting and this whole, this two room attic, uh, lair just shimmered with brilliance, uh, like they lived basically inside of a treasure chest. He and his girlfriend and an estimated two billion dollars worth of stolen art and in the middle of it all this four poster bed that he could sleep with girlfriend and be surrounded by beauty and this really happened and i think about this room very often and um it's possibly the most amazing aspect of the entire story that they that this in this nondescript suburb in this uh relatively quotidian house there was like something that was deserving of a room in the in the Louvre. How did he decide what to steal? You said he'd walk around museums and pass by lots of more valuable things, but he had this Stendhal, we'll keep calling it that, this reaction. But was there a premeditation? Did he say, ah, in this museum in Lucerne or someplace else, there is this piece that I must have? Or was it just a sort of spontaneous reaction to something on the wall that he couldn't resist, you know, in psychology and law, we used to call it an irresistible impulse. It was a defense, uh, an insanity defense. Did he have irresistible impulses spontaneously or derived, or was there more premeditation or both? Michael, I think you might've done a decent job defending Breitweiser. So first of all, I want to stress that all of Breitweiser's 200 different crimes in which he sometimes stole more than one piece. About 80% of them occurred with Anne Catherine, his girlfriend, as serving as lookout. They were all took place during the day, during a museum's opening hours, often with other people, sometimes even guards, in the gallery. And when it came to stealing, Breitweiser loved to look at catalogs, especially if there was an exhibit coming. He loved to look at museum offerings. And sometimes he would see a picture in a catalog and get that Stendhal syndrome reaction. He had his own term for Stendhal syndrome, which was coup de coeur, which is the French expression for literally a blow to the heart. But he would feel this thing. But he, you know, seeing something in a catalog is not, of course, anything like seeing it in person. And sometimes he would just go to a random museum. So he would walk around and, and the object of his thieving had to fit two criteria. First, he had to have a strong reaction to it as Breitweiser told me without any joking, uh, it's not really, really worth stealing something that you don't love. So he had to love it. And then the second part is that it had to be thievable, meaning that if it was too well guarded or too crowded or in a, you know, in a specific spot that was just very difficult to remove it from museum, he would have to abandon the crime or try again. And sometimes, you know, he'd have a piece, as he said, he would close his eyes and all he would see is this piece and trapped in a, a display case in these poor museum that's not even open at night. Ridiculous. And he had to liberate it. But uh, most of the time he would see something. He would have this coup de coeur, his Stendhal reaction. He would make amazingly spontaneous read, see where the cameras were, see where the guards were, see how many tourists there were, see where the exits were. Post Anne Catherine at a doorway, there a signal was nothing, nothing too profound. She would just, <clears throat> she would make a soft cough and she, he, Bright Visor would be warned that a guard or a tourist group was approaching. 
And he would, his only tool that he really ever used was a Swiss army knife. And sometimes he would remove a couple of screws or he would slice the silicon glue connecting the panels of a display case, or he would simply unhook a painting from the wall and use his knife to help remove the frame. And he would hide things in no great secret spot at the small of his back, especially in cooler weather. He loved to wear a long flowing trench coat, which would cover it. And rather than run out of the museum, which is the only time they ever ran out of the museum was their very first crime. They would walk softly, confidently out the front door of the museum and uh, walk to their car and not speed away. The terrible time to get a speeding ticket when you have a stolen work of art in your car and just drive slowly away. All these things that you don't imagine from the movies is precisely what Brad Wieser did. He believed in the invisible style when it came to crime. And what he meant by that was the best crime is one that occurred when nobody knew it was happening. You don't want to bust out machine guns and come sliding in through skylights and throwing smoke bombs. That's all for the movies. If you really want to steal art, Brad Wieser believed you have to do it quietly. And that's what he was a master of. But in plain view, which was the most amazing thing, when I read all of these thefts that you document, they were all in plain view. And he had only this Swiss army knife. Maybe it's a great advertisement for Swiss army knives, but that's all he did. And it's stunning. You know, I don't think it was so much the knife as the person himself. Like I, as much as I would like to have a Picasso or a Rembrandt on the wall behind me, uh, I probably will never have that because I, he, we're selling him short. He had, not just anyone could become an art thief like him. He had, you know, sang-froid, as they say in French, cold-blooded. He was, had this amazing ability, uh, sort of like a, a combination of a, a, a street magician, a pickpocket, uh, someone who just never betrayed nervousness. And, and Catherine, for some reason, also, like, I would just be a sweaty mess if I was even thinking of stealing something in the museum. I can't even, like, just even contemplating it here in the comfort of my home gets me all, like, uh, get, gets my forehead prickly and I would just fall apart. There's just no way that I would be able to get away with it. But Bright Visor, just a brief aside, you know, when we we did us many, many, many one-on-one interviews, I was the first American that Bright Fieser had ever granted an interview to. We spoke to each other in his native tongue, French, and that were, therefore he could express himself with the most poetry. And we did a lot of the uh, interviews in these tiny hotel rooms that I would uh, rent. Anybody who's traveled in Europe knows that many of the rooms, uh, hotel rooms are very small, walk-in closet sized. And uh, the ones I tended to rent, uh, I'm a journalist, I'm not an, uh, not an art collector or lawyer, unfortunately, you know, not being well paid. So I get the tiniest room. Uh, there's usually one chair in the room and I would let Brett Wieser sit in the chair and I would usually sit on the luggage rack and there'd be this tiny little desk between us. And I always like to keep my laptop on the corner of the desk, because Bright Beezer, as we mentioned, amazing autodidact would make these references to artists I hadn't heard. I would flip open the laptop, just do a quick search to see what he was talking about, then close the laptop and put it to the side. And usually when I'm doing an interview, I really like to maintain eye contact with someone. It's just a better way to talk to someone, allow my digital recorder to pick up the conversation. But I do take notes to record things like gestures and facial expressions and things that won't be picked up. And I Remember specifically asking Bright Beezer the same thing you just asked me. Like, I don't really understand how you're able to steal a work of art during the day with tourists. And like I said, sometimes guards in the room that just, you could say it all you want. I could read the police reports and they'll agree with it. Everything confirms it, but I just can't get my head around it. 
And I remember vividly, I'll never forget this, but Visa stopped the interview and he said, well, Mike, we're in this tiny hotel room recalled. And he said, well, did you, uh, did you see what I just did? And, um, you know, I, I kind of like it when criminals are sort of like in their game playing mode. I like to play along and I'm like, I wonder what he just did. And I'm looking around my tiny hotel room and I don't come up with anything. And I'm like, Stefan, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't see what you just did. And he stands up, he turns around, he lifts up his shirt and my laptop computer was tucked into the small of his back. And I guess that he had, I had take, been taking a note for a couple of seconds and he had just grabbed it, put it there and sat back down and there's nothing was happening. And he knew, I mentioned his psychological acumen that the absence of my computer somehow did not make an impression on me. Like you, you'll notice the presence of something. If suddenly a Christmas tree was in my room, I'd notice it immediately. But the absence of something takes an extra sensory sort of ability, which I do not have. And once he took my laptop, I sort of right from under my nose, literally, I was like, I understand how you got away with this in a visceral way. And uh, as I mentioned before, it's not something I could, I just gives me the heebie-jeebies, like so risky. One errant glance from one guard or one tourist and your life is effectively over. What a ridiculously risky way to live your life and not for money, but for the pleasure of the aesthetic capture. And uh, it was somehow this combination of the ridiculously immoral and impressively uh, obsessed um, behavior repeat, like on repeat that uh, was pure journalistic catnip to me. How could you not follow this story to its conclusion? He stole some very important works of art. Yes. Yeah. One of the pieces he stole was, is featured in a French book uh, put together by um, some of the leading um, art historians in France is one of the most important paintings in France. He stole, uh, yes, he stole, like you mentioned before, it wasn't the obvious or most valuable pieces, but he did, even the police that were chasing him or her or them, the police that were really baffled, but whoever was stealing these things, many detectives noted clearly had a good eye for art. These are the pieces that were like, wow, that's a, that was a very uh, wise acquisition or theft. Uh, so they were pieces that, that that spoke to his heart. They had to be small. They had to be stealable. But uh, he did have, I mean, it's kind of funny to talk to a, a detective who is incentivized to, you know, uh, to be furious at this theft, like sort of pausing a conversation to admit, gosh, I was, um, I was, I admit that I was uh, impressed with his, aesthetic eye which is uh, which again makes the whole pursuit of of a story like this more more fun and ever more fascinating and one of the wonderful things about the book which i was really excited to see was you have lots and lots of photos of the stolen objects and you can see i mean the rubens adam and eve sculpture and the madeleine and the civil of cleves these are Unbelievable works of art. So I never really loved the Renaissance period. I've been a more modern art person, but just spending all this time with Brett Beezer, who, by the way, is a, I, I, he probably, 
if he could, if he wasn't a thief, he would have made a great art professor. Just this wonderful style where, you know, rather than dissecting a work first, you talk about your emotions and your reactions to it. And then you start dissecting it. Let, let's, let's put the heart before the head when it comes to work of art. Please, too many people do the opposite. I, I you know, one of the benefits of my 11 years working on this is that I, do not walk through a museum in the same way as when I started this project. It really affected the way I react in, a, in an enriching way. Now, I have not stolen any works of art, nor will I, though I uh, admit, like many of us, I walk through a museum and I fantasize what would look nicest in my in my living room. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, I'm not even sure where, where I'm going with this answer. <laughs> well, the, the point is, is that he had an aesthetic taste that was to be admired by even the police. This was not a garden variety thief. And, and he stole from museums, as you said, with no remorse. Again, one of these things that you report without saying you believe it or not. But he said he talks about museums as prisons for art and that he viewed himself as a liberator, one of the people's champions for liberating art, although he locks in his third floor attic, you know, so it's not like he's displaying it uh, along the, the left bank or something. In speaking with Breitweiser, he would proffer uh, ridiculous theories that weren't entirely wrong, which is what made them so attractive, but were ridiculously just just impossible for a modern society to function. For example, I don't think that uh, when Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa, he was imagining, oh, what's the best way that people should see this work? Oh, well, let's put 700 people in a room. We'll all be elbowing each other to get a tiny little glimpse of this painting. I mean, when you go to the Louvre and you see the Mona Lisa, it's the most uncomfortable, uh, unsatisfying, uh, unesthetic experience possible. Like, really, when you see a work of art, which, first of all, what you want to do is, like, relax, like, sit in the most beautiful sofa or comfortable chair you name me i can name on pretty much zero fingers how many museums offer you like a sofa to relax in front of a work of art get a glass of wine run your fingertips maybe over the ridges of the paint to feel all paintings are three-dimensional these everything that you want to do according to bright Wieser, and he's not 100 percent wrong to enrich your aesthetic experience is forbidden in a museum, including, by the way, there was a huge erotic component to the thefts. Often, Bright Beezer and Anne Catherine would steal a piece and bring it up. And there was a reason there was a four poster bed in the room that was, uh, you know, this is also something that would be very much frowned upon in a museum um, to, to, you know, to couple with your with your lover uh, in front of a work that attracts you. And uh, so Bright Beezer, you know, in his twisted, you know, sense of um, morality would uh, claim that, you know, he, he was enjoying the works of art the way they were meant to be enjoyed and liberating them from museums. And, you know, I, uh, I can only sort of smile ruefully at uh, such, uh, such excuses. But again, there's the grain of he's not 100% wrong. And so uh, like a good Scheherazade, Bright Fieser, we, you know, we did 40 to 50 hours of interviews. He kept me riveted. What a, what a gift to, to journalists. What a story. And, uh, also I just loved the way he had thought everything out in a, you know, bizarre, unhealthy, perhaps unhealthy on my part way. Like, uh, the fact that he wasn't remorseful for stealing, uh, arts, works of art made him ever more fascinating to me. Let's turn 
to the Richard Bogner Museum and a bugle that's hanging in there because it's the beginning of the end. And I want to get, before we run out of time, I want to get to and what happens next. So time passes. They've uh, He's been arrested once for stealing from a commercial gallery in Lucerne. And they took his fingerprints and he got a lawyer. His mom got him a lawyer. And he was slightly punished. I put it lightly punished. But Anne Katrine is shaken by this. And she makes him a promise to not return to Switzerland. In fact, that was one of the conditions of his release, that he not return to Switzerland. And that if he's going to steal again, he absolutely must wear gloves so that his fingerprints, which are now with the police in Switzerland, are not discovered. So that that happens. And that brings us forward to the Wagner Museum in Lucerne and the Bugle. And say, so take us take us forward from there. Yeah, so from 1994 through the early 2000s, Bright Wieser and Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus go on a unprecedented stealing spree. They are, it's, this is almost, even just saying it sounds ridiculous, but as I, as I mentioned at the outset, this is true story completely. You know, they averaged one theft of art every 12 days for more than eight years. That is, there is not even any, the art theft, thefting, thieving team or art thief that could approach that ridiculous pace. Uh, and, but eventually, I mean, how long can you get away with such risky crimes as, as I've described some of them? You know, they're just like microsecond moments that he has to be able to thread this needle and gets away with it again and again and again and again. But really, how long can your, your luck and your skill last? And the answer is, an insanely long time, an impressively long time, an incredibly long time. And Catherine gets increasingly nervous. The attic room gets crowded, full, beyond full, and almost goes over to the other side into like too much. What's the end game? Like you are with your girlfriend with $2 billion worth of stolen art. Like, can you ever live a normal life? You can never have a friend come to her house. You can never even have a repair person come in. If something broke in his attic, Breitweiser either had to fix it himself or let it be broken. Like you are living, besides the fact that you you feel like you are the most, you know, extraordinary thief, you're really living a very circumscribed existence. You have to be secretive. You have to be cautious at every moment. Like, can, you know, and finally, and Catherine has enough of this Bonnie and Clyde business. And she's like, what? What's the end game? And it even starts thinking, like, how do you get out of this? Like, are you are the police just going to chase you your whole life? Can you have a child? Can you have a family? No, you cannot have any of these things. Like, he, she was even thinking, maybe we just return it all to a police station in the middle of the night. And of course, to Bright Visa, that was like, you know, lopping off your legs and returning them to a hospital or something like that. He was unfathomable. So she makes, she, she starts getting a little more nervous and starts in, instituting these rules. And one of them uh, was to, that he had to wear gloves. He never even cared about leaving his fingerprints around. He steals a beautiful bugle from the Wagner Museum in Lucerne, Switzerland, and uh, comes home. And Catherine stops joining him on most of the thefts, sort of like trying to back away, but still in love with him and living with him. So very uh, complicated sort of relationship where, and she says, you know, I, I don't really, I'm really not interested in, 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 in this another, yet another work of art. We already had a beautiful uh, hunting bugle, but I just want to know that you wore gloves. She could tell immediately by the look on his face that he did not wear gloves. She gets extremely upset. He says, I'll make it right. I'll drive back to the museum. 
She says, no, I'll drive back to the museum. They both go back to the museum the next day. Now, think about this. This is like literally in nine or 10 years, the first time that Brad Wieser and his girlfriend are going to a museum without the intent to steal. They're just going there to erase fingerprints. The one time they're going not to steal is when he gets caught. Uh, do not return to the scene of a crime. It's uh, for those of you out there considering life of crime. That's all I could say. Um, the person working the cashier notices that uh, same person, person wearing the same jacket on the day the, day, uh, the bugle was stolen, calls the police, and he gets arrested. Most fascinatingly, uh, for his arrest, the police somehow did not realize that he was with a girlfriend, was with an accomplice. So only Breitfieser gets arrested, and Anne Catherine, clearly distraught, upset is not captured. And so he's arrested and jailed in Switzerland and she drives back to France. And uh, this is where the whole story starts to turn. So he's in prison. They know it's him. They have his fingerprints from the earlier theft. They begin an interrogation. And he essentially says at the outset, yes, I admit I stole the bugle and hoping that they'll be satisfied that that's his only theft. And he calls Anne Catherine and his mother and says, can you bring the bugle back? I'm in, I'm in trouble here. And if only I return the bugle, I think everything will be fine, naively, because the police are not making any sense of what he's saying. They're not believing a thing of it. But then they'd never come back. They don't bring the bugle. He's sitting there incommunicado, essentially, and in solitary. And the interrogations continue. Until what? What happens? I guess it's a search warrant they're able to obtain. Yes? So there are 20 countries in the world that have dedicated police forces uh, for the recovery of stolen art and antiquities. That's how big that this form of crime is, including the United States, the uh, FBI's art crime team, 20 full-time detectives working on this. And Switzerland has a couple of detectives specifically geared towards uh, art and antiquities theft. France has a uh, a large uh, group of officers do devoted to this. So people were noticing all these items missing. They were so, Brett Wieser and Anne-Catherine Kleinkaus were so good at avoiding cameras that nobody was quite sure, but clearly all these works of art from a, a specific age range, uh, 16th and 17th century, Northern European oil, that is not Southern European tempura, you know, they, they were starting to make these patterns, but nobody knew who this was. And after Bright Visa was arrested stealing something from the Wagner Museum, some of the police officers are thinking, I wonder if this guy is responsible for anything more. And so Bright Visa is being held into the security conditions where he's unaware of what's going on in the outside world. He has no idea why isn't uh, why is he locked in jail? Like what's happening to his collection? The only thing he wants to prevent more than anything in the world is police officers going to his house, walking the attic and seeing he didn't just steal a bugle. He stole uh, 299 other items. So he's lot, he's admitting to this bugle. He's, you know, calculating, cutting his losses, triaging in his own head. Like, oh, if I admit to this bugle theft and it's returned undamaged and I, you know, he did a crime without any violence. It's just a couple months in jail, probably a slap on the wrist, like shoplifting something. You returned it perfect, in perfect condition. You didn't harm anybody. Nobody so much as sensed any fear. Like that's what he's thinking, but he can't, you know, he's trying to write letters to his, either his girlfriend or his mother getting no response. He's completely confused. One of the detectives says, uh, you know, 
he's holding him in this security confinement because he's trying to get this international search warrant. Remember, Bright Beezer lived in France. He was arrested in Switzerland. It took several weeks to arrange an international search warrant. But finally, the Swiss police achieve get an international search warrant and a team of officers, French and Swiss, show up at this nondescript house in the suburbs and Bright Beezer's mother opens the door and because they have a warrant, she cannot stop them. And they walk in and they walk up this narrow set of stairs and they open the door to the two room attic lair and nothing is inside. Not one work of art, not so much as a picture hook, just beautifully painted walls and a four poster bed. Hmm. So, this is a book where I really, in a way, want to leave the story right here because I want people to go buy and, and read this book so that they learn what happens in the end. And I'm, I'm tempted to leave it right there, but I want to give you sort of the, the last word here to say, what do you want to tell the listening audience? What tease do you want to say about how does that happen? How 300 pieces of art and some monumental things. There were big tapestries. There was some uh, statue that weighed 150 pounds. I mean, this is not, you know, trinkets. So tell us what you want to tell us, and then you'll take us out of here. Thank you so much, Michael, for being willing to, like, leave us on a bit of a cliffhanger, you know, wait for season two. But uh, we have only discussed approximately half of the book, The Art Thief, and the first half seems extraordinary. 200 thefts, 300 works of art. This accomplice's mother's the attic, the, the, um, chutzpah of it all, the $2 billion worth of art, the love making in front of these questions. And that's, in my opinion, is the least extraordinary half that like any good Icarus story, the closer you fly to the sun, the harder you're going to crash. And I don't think anybody in the history of art crime and people have been stealing art since people have been making it. And uh, the crash is, again, this is not fiction. This is nonfiction. This is true. Uh, the crash is less predictable, more devastating and horrifying one one might add than uh, the, than the rise you know what happens where's where's everything that was in that room what happens and you know where did it all go did bright Wieser have a secret plan did his mother really know what he was doing and all of these come to a sort of um unpredictable conclusion. And I really appreciate that you're willing to let people discover it on their own. I think that's part of the joy I did, like I mentioned, work on this for more than a decade. And I do not take readers for granted. I wanted to wait until I found a story that was just stunning uh, to tell. And the book itself is only 200 pages, so it, it should be a fairly fast read. But I really hope that uh, people consider uh, finding out you know, what happens to the works and who's responsible and how you feel in the end. And uh, all I can say is that in all my years of journalism, three plus decades, I don't know if I've come across the story with more twists and turns and that if it was fiction, you'd probably throw the book across the room saying no one would ever believe this. Um, and that's the types of stories I, I look for. And again, Michael, thank you so much for willing to like, let me string people out. And I, are people, are people saying, what the heck, you know, you, you can't bring me to this spot. And I, I think that's where we are.
I think that's where we are too. I'm sure that Faye, my producer, and I are going to receive emails saying, really? Really? <laughs> I listened to an hour of, you know, an uh, interview where we talk about this psychotic uh, theft of arts. Um, and you're not going to tell us how it turns out in the end. Yeah. And I guess the answer is, yeah. I'm not going to tell you how it turns out <laughs> in the end. But as Mike said, it's only a partial happy ending, right, Mike? Would you, would, can we say that? Of course. Uh, maybe not a happy ending at all, but it's, it's what happens. You know, again, I, um, I'm just your, I'm, I'm just your mere chronicler. This really happened in uh, northeastern France just the other day. If his, his, I'll, I'll say this, that his final trial that I went to was in March of 2023. That's like six or seven months ago. So this is not ancient history or even little bit of history this just unfolded recently and if you haven't heard this story before it is because Brad Fieser um, isn't American and so it's a you know this is a little bit of a well-known story in Europe but really it's the first time I've, I've brought it to a, a U.S. audience and I hope I hope people have a good time reading it it's uh you know it, it smacks me it changed it changed the way I look at art it's sort of infuriated me it impressed me and all like a whole uh, a whole melange of, of emotions and that's Maybe the sign of a, a good yarn. It's a great book. It's called The Art Thief, A True Story of Love, Crime, and a Dangerous Obsession. Mike Finkel, thank you so much for writing this book and for spending this hour with us. And hopefully we will weather the storm of social media criticism for not giving away the ending. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a real, it's been a real fun talking to you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.